Everything needs to be memorialized. Every phone call, every meeting should be memorialized at great length. And look, when a spy meets with an agent, that's exactly what they do afterwards. They file what's known as a contact report. The contact report contains the intelligence gathered. That's obviously the most important thing, but it will also have details on the agent. What's his or her state of mind? Are they under suspicion? Are they having problems at home? Are they paranoid? Are they short of money? This is exactly the type of thing you should also be noting when you're doing your sales pitch. The B2B Marketing Exchange brings together B2B marketing and sales practitioners from across the country to get the latest tools and tips they need to succeed. Now, we're bringing the insights from the stage to your ears. I'm Claudia Tarico, And I'm Kelly Lindenow. And this is the B2B Marketing Exchange Podcast. Hello, everyone. We're back with another episode of the B2B MX podcast. And this week, we're going back to B2B MX in Scottsdale to revisit a very unique session from our stage. Jeremy Hurowitz was a first-time speaker at our event this year, and he really brought his A-game to Arizona. His company is called Sell Like a Spy. So... We all know where we're going with this, right? He's actually an expert at using spy tradecraft and spy ideas specifically for B2B marketing and sales professionals. I thought that this was such a cool concept and theme and even execution on it because Jeremy ties the work of CIA case officers to the work of BDRs and account managers. And using that, he shares how these spies leverage unique psychological skills to make their sale and cultivate long-term relationships with clients. Yeah, this session was packed with really unique, actionable takeaways from spies themselves, who Jeremy actually says are the world's best salespeople. So you be the judge of that. And yeah, let's roll that tape in three, two, one. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. And it's great to be with you this morning to discuss Sell Like a Spy, business development lessons and communication strategies from the world of espionage. Now, let me tell you about the idea of Sell Like a Spy. At heart, it's about the fact that I believe that spies are actually the world's best salespeople. Because ask yourself, what's a harder sale to make than get, getting someone to commit treason? Spies leverage an elite set of skills when it comes to connecting with a vast array of humanity. And there's so many compelling lessons, ideas, and strategies that we can incorporate into our own salesmanship and communications to be more effective at our jobs and in our everyday lives. So we're gonna spend roughly 30 minutes serving a few of the, the principles of the Sell Like a Spy program. The other philosophical idea I really believe in that I wanna share with you is that unless your product or service is truly differentiated in the marketplace, or you have a price point that blows competitors out of the water, it's salesmanship that's gonna be a critical detail and differentiating factor in your ability to be successful in any endeavor. Now I mentioned the idea of uh, skills for everyday life. I really believe in this, and I like to refer to what I call the virtuous circle. So what we're gonna talk about today, I wanna to urge you to think about using in your everyday life and with your colleagues, because the idea of the virtuous circle is if you practice these things, you're gonna make them second nature, and you'll be able to use them easier in the more high stakes world of your career. But if you use them with friends, family, and colleagues, I think you'll find that your ability to influence people, to connect more deeply, to be understood, will be augmented as well. So do think about using these skills in your everyday life, and I'll make a couple of particular points as we go forward about that idea. 
I also usually spend time at the beginning of any presentation, um, sometimes quite a bit, on the world of intelligence and misconceptions about this world, and there are so many. I'm sure you watch Hollywood you know, TV shows and movies, and that is not a good summation of the world of espionage. The idea of the James Bond spy, Jack Ryan, all of that, is pretty far from the real, real world of espionage. In reality, I think that we should think of spies as essentially elite relationship managers with an unusually adept ability at connecting very deeply with their agents. And at heart of espionage is the idea of connection. And I think that is also the heart of any good salesperson's tradecraft as well. Now, I like to use what I call spy quotes to illuminate certain concepts. They're quotes from former intelligence officers that we can build off of and riff on. And this first quote here is my very favorite spy quote. It's that every good intelligence officer has a real bond with their target on some level and in some regard. Now, my build on that is that it's about connection and not deception. We in the sales world sometimes have to overcome buyers who are suspicious of us, who keep us at arm's length. There are all sorts of negative stereotypes about salespeople, like used car salesmen and being slippery. That's not how I approached my sales career, and I don't think it's probably how you approach yours either. Despite the demands of quarterly quota attainment and all of that, I always want to build deep, long-term relationships, right? And I think you do as well. And that's the approach I take in Sell Like a Spy and what I want to talk with you about. And that's how spies go about things too. Sometimes the sales cycle for a spy is gonna take quite a long time, but they're looking to really build that relationship and connect deeply. Now I mentioned the idea of Hollywood and how they portray spies, and I'm sure you've seen uh, TV shows and movies where a spy is blackmailing somebody, extorting them, coercing them in some way, even torturing them. And look, I can't stand up here and tell you that that's never happened in the history of the CIA. It certainly has. I think you're all probably aware of the post 9-11 torture scandals. But for the most part, the CIA is not training its case officers to engage in such activities. They are training them to connect really deeply. There's a saying at the agency that spies convince, thugs coerce. And I think that says it all. They're trying to get a relationship formed with some, really, some people they might not normally find that connection with very easily. Because let's talk first about the challenges we face in the sales world, right? I mentioned that sometimes people regard us with suspicion, all of that. That's kind of a natural. But just any human encounter, often you find somebody that you have a rapport with right away. You kind of hit it off, we like to say. But just as often you find people who you might be kind of neutral about, or they might feel neutral towards you. Or then there's the other side of it where they might, you might be sensing they don't really like you, or you might not like somebody that you're trying to influence. That could be a big challenge. You know, what comes to mind for me automatically now is a quote that's attributed to Abraham Lincoln. I don't like that person, I must get to know him better. How do you overcome the challenges of trying to connect with a sales target when they don't, either, they don't potentially like you or you don't like them or you're just not necessarily hitting it off? Taking it as a challenge and trying to overcome that is a major sales accomplishment. Now, let's put it in the context of spies and what they do. Spies aren't necessarily recruiting people they would choose to be friends with, right? They often have to recruit criminals, terrorists, diplomats from some of the world's most odious regimes. And they have to find a way to create that real bond on some level and in some regard. And they do that in part by practicing what's known as tactical empathy, sometimes referred to as radical empathy. The idea here is to find that kernel of humanity that they can grab onto and focus on to connect with that person and recruit them, right? And we should be thinking about that in the sales context as well. 
So it's the criminal that's actually a devoted family man or the terrorist that actually practices acts of charitable good. The spy is going to focus on those things and not the many negatives about recruiting these uh, disreputable characters. Now, in sales, fortunately, we don't have to recruit criminals and terrorists, but I think these are analogous ideas when it comes to overcoming the challenges of getting to know somebody that's either not treating you particularly well or you don't particularly like that person. We need to influence them. We need to overcome those things. The other thing that spies think about is there's a saying at the agency that if you don't have a hobby, go out and get one or get three. You know, you should have many different aspects of hobbies, passions, pursuits that you can turn to to have both a rich life and have many different opportunities to connect with people. Spies are really good at this. They're intellectually omnivorous. They're shapeshifters. They're able to talk with people and connect with them on so many different levels. And if they know their target is an avid sailor, they're going to learn all about sailing. If someone is a very passionate chess enthusiast, they're going to learn about chess. So I think a lot of times in sales, we make it about our product or service and what we're trying to tell, and we don't do enough to get to know that individual. What makes them tick? What are their interests and their ideas and being strategic about it? Now, the final point on connection here is something that's a bit personal to me, but I think it's really useful in uh, bringing up a personal story because I think you'll really connect to this idea a little bit more, and it will give you a tool to overcome those challenging environments when someone you might not, you need to influence, you're not necessarily connecting with that easily. Now, the idea here is that vulnerability breeds intimacy and humanity breeds credibility. Let me tell you a quick personal anecdote to illuminate this, and I think you'll see where I'm going with it. A little over a decade ago, I had a brain tumor. And uh, it was a benign tumor, but uh, it was choking off the auditory nerve in my right ear. The procedure to remove it rendered me deaf in my right ear. So since then, it's been kind of a different world for me. If you're walking with me in the hallways here and chatting, you're going to find that I'm going to come around you and have you on my left every time. If we're sitting and having lunch, I'm going to try to position myself to have everything on my left. And look, I'm not shy. I can't, there's been many occasions where I'm at a business luncheon and my, my clients arrive before me, and I actually will ask them if they wouldn't mind swapping seats with me. So this comes up, and I'm, I'm not shy about pointing it out. And when I share this, something really incredible happens, right? I've created vulnerability. I've, I've showcased my humanity, okay? And so many times, not... Not 90% of the time, not 95% of the time, but 100% of the time I share this particular detail about myself, I move closer to the person I'm talking to. Maybe even felt it in this room when I mentioned that. Something shifted in you and you looked at me differently for a minute and felt that common humanity. I've created a zone of intimacy by sharing something about myself, by making myself vulnerable. And so many times I've shared this in a business setting because it's tactical. It just comes up naturally because of the reasons I just mentioned. And all of a sudden, this person is telling me something very intimate about themselves or their loved ones. And we have overcome that zone of suspicion and created more of an intimate relationship that we can grow from. And that's because also people tend to respond to things in kind. When you share something about yourself people will usually share something similar about their own experience. And you should remember that, and it's gonna bring us to our next skill that I wanna to talk to you about, which is about the art of conversation. I spend a lot of time working with teams about how to have better conversations, richer conversations, and connect more deeply. And I wanna talk with you a little bit about that. And I wanna give you a quick spy anecdote to illuminate the skill I'm about to share with you. I call this the small town exercise. It was told to me by a former case officer who was recounting their training at the farm, which is the famed CIA training facility in rural Virginia. 
And he told me about how this little cohort of uh, trainees was taken to a seaside village in Virginia and given the following challenge. Go up to somebody and start talking with them and learn as much as you can without asking a question. Now you might be sitting there saying, well, how do you learn from somebody without asking a question, Jeremy? So let me give you an example about how this might look. Let's say I'm on this training exercise and it is late May around Memorial Day weekend and it's an unseasonably warm day. So I walk up to somebody on the street, I start chatting with them and I say something like, wow, what a sweltering day. I'm from the Pacific Northwest and where I come from, it's rarely this hot, so I am just dying today. That person, I pause and leave it there. That person perhaps responds and says something like, you know what, this really doesn't phase me. I grew up in Florida, where I come from, it's this hot or hotter for most of the year, so it's no big deal. I didn't ask any question there, right? That person responded in kind, as I mentioned earlier, and I was able to learn something about them and start to build a profile in my mind about who this individual might be. And that brings us to the skill of elicitation, which is a technique used to subtly collect information. Now, I spend a lot of time working with HR people and learning and development professionals when we're setting up trainings for their sales teams or their corporate executives, and I have to assure them over and over again, I'm not gonna train your team in the black arts. They're not gonna be breaking into places and stealing secrets, it's not about that, okay? So elicitation is the one that causes the most concern in that respect. But it is, elicitation is something that we use all the time. It's used on you, maybe even used it today or had it used on you. Let me give you a couple of examples about how this might work in both everyday life, in the spy world, and in the sales world to illuminate this. So everyday life. Let's say that I have a friend named Rachel. And Rachel has a big birthday coming up, and all of Rachel's friends are plotting a surprise party for her, and we want to make it really fun. So we're trying to have uh, Rachel's favorite food at the party, but none of us can remember what our favorite food is. You know, some friends, I guess, right? Um, but I have an idea. I decide I have a strategy here. I call up Rachel and I say, hey, I heard about this new uh, Italian restaurant in my neighborhood. It's getting rave reviews. Um, I was wondering if you're free sometime next week for dinner. Uh, didn't you tell me Italian food is your favorite? And she replies and says something like, Italian food isn't my favorite. Actually, sushi is my favorite food, but I'm happy to go sometime next week. So now I know that we should have sushi at the party. What would have happened if I asked it very directly? You know, she would have been a little bit maybe tipped off. Why is he asking me about my favorite food? You know, what's going on here? But I relied on something that in behavioral science that teaches us very specifically that there is something known as the tendency to correct. It's a really powerful part of human behavior. It would have been very strange for Rachel to reply and say something like, no, you know, it, uh, Italian isn't my favorite, but I'm happy to go. She wants me to know what her favorite food is because we're all the stars of our own little universe. And there's no detail about ourselves that's too small to correct. So you can use that tendency to correct in a wide variety of circumstances when you're kind of fishing for information. Because what I also should have pointed out when I started on elicitation is that whether you're a spy, a salesperson, a journalist, anybody who wants to get to know a certain subject, right? You wanna learn all about that person. But if you start asking a million direct questions, then you're gonna kind of put people ill at ease, they're gonna be suspicious, they're gonna be a little bit more guarded. So elicitation offers us, as I just demonstrated, a way to subtly collect information that can be really helpful to ourselves. Let me give you an example from the spy world. Let's say that I am a case officer, in a CIA case officer in Jakarta, Indonesia, attending a mining conference at a fancy hotel. 
I'm talking with somebody who's a mining consultant and he has some really interesting anecdotes and I'm thinking this might be an interesting individual to recruit to be my agent. And I want to figure out the motivation of that individual. I don't think that salespeople do enough to understand the motivation of their potential buyer. Is that person a new manager of their team? You know, are they newly open to putting their, their imprint on the team by uh, evaluating a competitor for a product or service they use? What is the motivation of the buyer? We should be thinking that, about that a little bit more instead of only thinking about our presentation and demonstrating our value proposition. So in this case, I'm trying to ascertain what the motivation will be of this potential agent to collaborate with me. So I decide on something. I say, that was a fascinating piece of information you just shared with me. Really, really interesting stuff. You know, there are people that would pay a lot of money to learn this kind of information on a regular basis. And then I leave it there. That person is likely to respond in one of two ways. He will likely say something like, wow, that's really interesting. I'd love to monetize my knowledge a little bit more. And that way, if he says something like that, I know that financial inducements are how to get that individual to cooperate with me. If he just shrugs and says, yeah, I'm already well compensated, but thanks for pointing that out, then I know I'm gonna need to find a different motivation, a different tool to get this person to work with me. So in addition to demonstrating uh, another form of elicitation, not asking a question there, just putting something out there and letting my target demonstrate the path forward, I'm also trying to get to the bottom of their motivation. Let me give you an example from the sales world. A lot of the sales that I've done is retainer-based sales, annual renewals, um, six, seven-figure renewals. They were a big part of the type of work I've done in consulting. And these, you know, I'm sure you can understand, we would live and die by these renewals. We would plan for months for them, and they were a huge part of our quota and our year. So let's say I have a big renewal coming up uh, in about six weeks. Really important client for me. Service year over year is rather flat, so I can't see the trend going up where I can upgrade them, but I don't know if it's gonna be a downgrade. Maybe I haven't put in enough time getting to know this client this year. I'm a little in the dark. It's a private company, so I can't really tell how they're faring in the marketplace to understand if there are economic headwinds that will hurt us as well. So I have an idea. I call up my client. Let's say her name is Jennifer. She runs the team. And I say, hey, Jennifer, I heard a rumor. I just wanted to touch base, make sure and I wonder if there was any truth to this. I heard that you know, the business is struggling, it's been a tough year, I'm hearing details about budget cuts and layoffs. I, you know, I found it kind of disturbing, I wanted to just give you a ring and see if there's any truth to this rumor. And Jennifer says something like, well, Jeremy, I think you better get some new sources. We're actually having a great year, budget's going up, we're gonna be doing some hiring in the next quarter, so yeah, you better get some new sources, friend. So I relied on the same thing as Rachel's surprise party there. I got the tendency to correct going for her to tell me what I needed to know, because now I know that economic headwinds are not gonna be what hurts me for this renewal. So not only was the tendency to correct demonstrated there once again, another important trigger for elicitation is demonstrated as well, which is professional pride. Jennifer could have just said, no, Jeremy, don't worry, we're doing fine. But she wanted to do a little bit of bragging and say how good of a year she's having, because I'm a professional acquaintance, and she's proud of her work. Professional pride can be a really powerful trigger for you to learn about your clients. And that folds into a couple other triggers. I love talking about elicitation. I run workshops on it. I could talk about it all day, but just uh, we only have a few minutes. So uh, the other couple interesting triggers for elicitation are flattery. And that's kind of happening there a little bit too. If you flatter somebody and they're gonna to wanna to demonstrate pride about how they got there. People have humility. They might get self-deprecating to kind of explain how they've achieved the thing that you're flattering them on. 
So that's a, a really good one to think about. Uh, gossip is a good one. People love to gossip. They'll tell you more than they want to. Uh, asking for help. That triggers an altruistic response where people will explain a lot of different things so you can elicit information that way. Also, awkward silences. People hate awkward silences. They will do anything to get away from an awkward silence. If you can get comfortable with that, people will blurt things out often. That's actually quite interesting. So keep that in mind when you're getting to know somebody. I'm seeing some smiles there. Finally, on uh, elicitation, I want to inform you about the hourglass conversation. This is important both for the Rachel surprise party and uh, Jennifer's team. The hourglass conversation is about the fact that people tend to remember the beginning and end of a conversation more than they remember the middle. So if you're planning an attempt at elicitation, not just kind of improvising in, a, in the middle of your conversation, put it in uh, the middle of the conversation. So I would have called up Jennifer and said, talked about a project I just completed with her team after a little small talk, put my attempt at elicitation in the middle, and then I would have finished off talking about, you know, a project we're going to do for her team, maybe talking about a sports team I know she follows or where she vacations with her family because I'm a good sales rep and I've done my homework and I know this, this individual. But put that attempt at elicitation in the middle of the conversation. All right, I want to talk about impressions and approaches. And I want to give you another spy quote here. Be attuned to language used, body language, volume, and others in the room. And to demonstrate where I'm going with this, I want to give you two different scenarios, okay? I'm waiting in a conference room for some prospects to come in that I'm going to pitch. I hear, I think, you know, subtle footsteps coming down the hall, but not too much. And the clients walk in, and they are four men, very conservatively dressed. They give me a brief hello. They sit down, shuffle some papers. And after the most cursory kind of introduction, they jump right into getting down to business. Scenario B, I'm waiting to, for clients, and I hear feet shuffling in the hallway, I hear you know, voices, I hear laughter, and in walks uh, four individuals, men and women, and they're more casually dressed, they're joking around, they're laughing about the happy hour they went to last night, and uh, they sit down with me and we talk for 10 minutes, kind of bantering and joking around before we get down to business. Two very different scenarios, right? I think we've all encountered that, and we all naturally pivot subconsciously, socially in those settings. This is where spies really shine because they will, not, they will elevate from the subconscious to the conscious what's going on in that moment. And they do so in part by doing labeling. They will say to themselves in their head, these are conservative individuals who I don't need to let my personality shine in this meeting. I need to demonstrate my value proposition. I need to understand their business. I'm gonna stiffen my spine and show how professional and how much of an expert I am at my product and service. With the other ones, they want to buy from people they like. They want to get to know you. They want to see your personality. So I'm going to say that in my head. I'm going to label that. And then I'm going to let my personality shine in that situation. But the point here is that the atmosphere and intangibles of an environment in which you're selling can drastically impact the sale that you're making. And it goes beyond the personalities at the table, okay? I think the culture of a certain company is very evident in what the office looks like. So if I have a couple sales pitches during a day, at the first one I go to, I wind up walking into a room, uh, an office, and it's very Spartan. There's not much emphasis placed on interior design, very basic. That's signaling to me that a value sell is going to carry the day. They're going to care about budget very strongly. So I'm going to lean on that a little bit. Conversely, later in the day, I go to see a client and there's gorgeous interior design, beautiful art, beautiful furniture. 
Well, that signals to me that a premium sell and showing them that I have the best in class of the product or service they're thinking about is what should affect my pitch. So that's, again, elevating the subconscious to the conscious because you naturally pivot in those different environments, but really take in those details to help your sales pitch in that environment. I also want to point out uh, a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, and I want to encourage you to take notes like a spy. I think taking notes is a blind spot in the business world. I'm a former journalist. I've worked with spies, so I am a passionate note taker, okay? And I think we should improve our ability to take notes. If I became your head of sales tomorrow, the first thing I would say is everything needs to be memorialized. Every phone call, every meeting should be memorialized at great length. And look, when a spy meets with an agent, that's exactly what they do afterwards. They file what's known as a contact report. The contact report contains the intelligence gathered. That's obviously the most important thing. But it will also have details on the agent. What's his or her state of mind? Are they under suspicion? Are they having problems at home? Are they paranoid? Are they short of money? This is exactly the type of thing you should also be noting when you're doing your sales pitch. Sure, the government's not gonna be on the tail of your sales prospect, but what's going on in their life? You know, where do they vacation in the summer? What sports team do they follow? You know, what TV shows do they like? No detail is too small there. And you should be noting all of these details. I became kind of infamous with my colleagues because we'd finish a meeting. And in meetings, I do take notes, uh, but very tactical details on when a proposal's due, certain economic things. It looks professional to take some notes. But most of the time, I want to be a great active listener. I want to be looking to elicit information. We're going to talk about mirroring in a moment. I'm going to be mirroring behaviors. Afterwards, I would do a brain dump and just kind of put everything I noted from the um, atmosphere that the, the office was to what was going on at the individuals at the table. Was there any rivalry that I detected? Was I thinking I was going to try to influence the managing director? She's going to be the decision maker. But during that meeting, she was playing on her phone the whole time and kind of rude. And it was the principal next to her that was actually asking all the relevant questions. Sales reps do four or five meetings a day. They are chasing many different accounts. Noting all of these things is critical. And then finally here, uh, you know, sales has one of the highest turnovers of any industry. And that's something you could talk to me on the sidelines about. I've chatted with a few of you about it. I'm happy to chat a little bit more. But salespeople leave or they get laid off. It happens, right? And they take with them tons of cultural history that is really important. I've joined consulting organizations and picked up a multi-million dollar book of business and been given zero context <laughs> about what the clients are like, what's the culture, who are the key people there, right? You need to have these things. So as your head of sales, I would immediately make sure that we're developing a robust history of a client. Further on uh, the atmosphere and intangibles, here's another spy quote for you. People wear their identities and often tell you who they are. I take it a step further. I think people are shouting out to tell you who they are based on how they dress and how they act. It's evident in our hairstyles and our, our accessories, our facial hair, lack thereof, the clothing that we wear and how we wear it, our body language, our tone of voice. All of these are a roadmap to an individual. They're advertisements for who we are and how we want to be seen by the world. That's why I like to flip the old cliche that you can't judge a book by its cover. I think that's nonsense. I say you can judge a book by its cover. The key detail is you have to be ready to understand that people are complex, they're contradictory, they have multitudes, right? So you have to understand and pivot if the person that you think you're approaching and talking to proves to be somebody else when you talk to them, right? But it is good strategy and it's something that spies use when they decide who and how they approach. They're gonna use what's being given to them, what's being shown about the individual they're talking to. 
So I want to encourage you to network like a spy and use the spy skill known as spotting. Spotting is how spies go about finding new targets to potentially influence and recruit as an agent. And I'm going to tell you about this right now. Maybe you can even use it later today at some of these events. The idea of spotting is like you walk into a business cocktail reception. Maybe there's 100 people in the room and you don't know any of them. Even the biggest extrovert could find that socially intimidating, right? So maybe you do what I've done often in my career before I was using this skill. You go directly to the bar and get a drink, right? <laughs> and then you start uh, talking and falling into conversation with the first person you wind up talking to. And that's fine. I've met some interesting people that way. But a spy is going to go about things quite a bit differently. A spy is going to walk into that room and assess the landscape, get, get the lay of the land. He or she is going to note the silver fox in the middle of the room holding court with people surrounded by acolytes. They're going to know that's somebody who might be influential in this crowd. I want to learn about that person. But he might be surrounded by people all night long. And a spy knows that it's harder to resist a sales pitch one-on-one -on -one than it is in a group. So he's not necessarily going to focus on that individual. He might try to give a business card to that person, see if we can connect on another day. But he also might look to see who seems to know that person really well. I'm going to try to talk to that person when they're separated from him so that I could make that person my access agent. That is a bridge to the key decision maker, which I also talk with sales teams a lot about too, an access agent to help you get to where you need to do, they need to be. And that's what I've done many times in my career. The warm introduction is the holy grail, right? So the spy is going to continue around the room, note the kind of wallflowers picking at uh, hors d'oeuvres, sipping a drink, knows that those are safety conversations if you need to talk to somebody. They're going to look at the name tags and note you know, the name of the person and say, is there a language that that signals to me that I speak or a culture I know? What is the affiliation on the tag? Is that a diplomatic mission I want to infiltrate or a company that I know could be interesting for me? He's going to do all that and more before he or she goes up to the anybody and starts approaching them. And I would encourage you to do so as well in the 60 to 90 minutes you have at some sort of reception. Be strategic about who you talk to. So I hope that's interesting for you. And if that is, come up and talk to me about how I uh, parlayed that skill into one of the best sales of my career, which was uh, working with the New York Yankees. So if that's interesting, come talk to me on the sidelines and I'll tell you about that. All right, let's talk about mirroring. Mirroring is a, a spy skill. It's a, it's a skill taught in the business world quite widely. I think I have my own little kind of spin on it, but maybe some of you know what mirroring is. It is something that can help you augment what comes naturally to all of us, okay? We use mirroring all our lives. I have a picture of an infant up there. We are mirroring even when we're infants. We look up at the world from the crib and we mirror the behaviors of people around us to learn how to actually behave like a human being. And we do this all our lives. Perhaps you've uh, been in a room where someone yawns and everyone, it feels like it's contagious, right? Or you walk by somebody on the street and they, and you, they smile at you and you smile back almost automatically. That's human empathy at work and it powers mirroring. Behavioral science has shown that it is a shortcut to building familiarity. It is a way to build rapport with somebody. We can see an example of uh, mirroring on the screen here. I don't know if this couple are out on a date or if it's a business meeting, whatever it is, it's going well. She's leaning forward, elbows on the table. She's got a particular gesture going, she's smiling. He's meeting her where she is. He's not leaning back, legs crossed, relaxed. He's leaning forward, elbows on the table, has a similar gesture, a, a smile on his face. That powerfully signals to her that he's on the same page with her. He's a friend, not a foe. Now, I want to talk to you about verbal mirroring, which I think is kind of the varsity move of mirroring. And it can be really powerful to combine these two things together. 
in my career in corporate security, not only have I worked with many different former intelligence officers, I've walked with, worked with Secret Service, military interrogators, special forces veterans, and FBI hostage negotiators who have an incredible set of skills they bring to bear in some really difficult situations. Verbal mirroring is one of the key tools for a, ho a hostage negotiator because they can't be across from a hostage taker, right? They have to speak to them on the phone or on a walkie-talkie, and it's a very critical situation. You have somebody who has either committed violence or is threatening to, is holding people against their will. It's a really difficult situation. So the hostage negotiator uses verbal mirroring to connect with their target and signal to them that I have empathy for you and I want this to have a good outcome. So he will try to mirror the language that he's getting from somebody to try to create that empathy, get that person to calm down and bring this to a good outcome. And that's what we can do as well to, to augment what we're doing um, with physical mirroring. And when it comes to verbal mirroring, you should look for keywords or uh, colloquialisms um, or turns of phrases, pet words that somebody tends to use. We all have these little phrases, right? Somebody I work with who uses the term 100% whenever he wants to say yes or very regularly. Another person says, by the way, all the time. These are people I happen to know very well, but because I always want to keep my mirroring chops up, I tend to use that when I'm speaking with them. And it signals to them I'm on the same page, you know? So use these words back. Now, a little note of caution here, don't overdo it when it comes to mirroring. Bad mirroring is easy to spot, okay? So practice mirroring in your everyday life in the lower stakes environment with your friends and your family. And they can call you out and say, what the heck are you doing? You know, they might note your first attempts. It can look like you're copying somebody or even mocking them, which is obviously not the place you wanna be with any prospect or client. So practice mirroring in your everyday life to get good at it and also see how it works with people to build that rapport. All right, in conclusion here, I wanna share some final thoughts with you. We can all improve when it comes to connecting with people. So I wanna really encourage you to connect deeply with your clients, leverage some of these spy skills and think about how spies overcome the challenges of connecting really deeply with people from some backgrounds that might be really hard to do so. Make yourself vulnerable, showcase your humanity to try to overcome challenges within a context of any sale. Use elicitation strategically to collect information. Don't be too on the nose when you're talking to somebody. Try to do your homework, know a lot about the client, and then find a way to ask a question in a little bit of a circumspect way to collect the information you need to be where you want to be. Be mindful of the atmosphere and intangibles. They can really affect a sale, the culture of an organization, what the dynamics is amongst the individuals you're trying to influence, and really take notes about that organization so that you can build a long-term cultural history of a client to benefit what you're doing. Mirror your targets to shortcut rapport building. Verbal mirroring and physical mirroring can be a really powerful way to connect with people. And finally, my philosophy is people buy from those they like. People remember how you made them feel. These skills can help you build rapport and connect really deeply with your sales targets. So I hope that was interesting for you. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. Please come up and talk with me on the sidelines. Thank you so much. It was so fascinating to relive how B2B sales relates to the world of espionage. And Jeremy just put on such a fun session. So big shout out to him for that great presentation. Yeah, I would never have guessed that these worlds can collide somehow. So thanks a lot, Jeremy. And thank you all for listening today. Don't miss any upcoming episodes, of course, by subscribing to the pod on your podcast player of choice. 
And as always, connect with us on Twitter and LinkedIn to share your feedback and tell us who else you want to hear from. Oh, and of course, we're still counting down to B2B SMX. So check out our show notes for an exclusive offer to save on a ticket to the event. We'll be in Boston this August and it's coming up really quick and we really want to see you there. So hopefully we get those regs coming through. All right, everyone, have a great rest of your week and we'll be back with another episode next Wednesday.